From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show, connecting your neighborhood with the world. Filling most prescriptions these days can be as easy as a few mouse clicks for doctors and a drive through the CVS for patients, but for those seeking more powerful medications like painkillers and sedatives, prescriptions have remained decidedly offline. But... Changing federal rules, innovations in medical technology, and the growing epidemic of prescription drug addiction are changing that. Now approved for online transaction, only a trickle of these prescriptions are actually making it to pharmacies. So, what's the holdup at the doctor's office? What innovations have made these potent prescriptions safer? And how can new technology help fight a drug abuse problem? Joining me to discuss this is Paul Urig. He is Chief Administrative and Legal Officer and Chief Privacy Officer with SureScripts. Paul Urig, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Also in studio is Dr. Peter Kaufman. He is Chief Medical Officer with Dr. First and a gastroenterologist with Capital Digestive Care in Bethesda, Maryland. Peter Kaufman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Joining us from the studios of WGBH in Boston is Dr. Sean Kelly, Chief Medical Officer with Improvata and Emergency Medical Physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Sean Kelly, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Kojo, and hello, Paul and Peter. If you'd like to join this conversation, give us a call at 800-433-8850 or go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. Should prescriptions for all drugs be done electronically, or do you think paper prescriptions are still safest for some drugs? 800-433-8850 or send an email to kojo.wamu.org. Paul, over the past decade and a half, we've seen the gradual conversion of prescriptions from a doctor's scrawl on a pad to just a few mouse clicks. And when those prescriptions are sent, your company, SureScripts, is the one that connects 95% of the pharmacies in this country with the doctor's orders. But prescriptions for controlled substances like painkillers and sedatives were left out of all of this innovation. Can you give us a little background on why? Sure. So the journey for electronic prescribing really started in 2001 when pharmacies and uh, prescription benefit management companies realized the value of e-prescribing uh, and created SureScripts to be that network that you described. Um, but the DEA uh, always uh, prohibited the e-prescribing of a controlled substance. You have to remember that the DEA looks at things really from a law enforcement perspective. Uh, so they want to make sure that they can continue to use their investigatory uh, techniques to basically uh, enforce the laws. And they were concerned that that in this movement from paper to an automated process that they would lose some of those tools. Think of fingerprint analysis on a piece of paper. You can't do that with, with e-prescribing. There's no piece of paper. Think of um, handwriting analysis. You can't do that in e-prescribing because there's no uh, handwriting on the signature. So the DEA took a number of years uh, to formulate a rule that would put in place the security, the audit trails, and the other attributes so that they could basically attract to make sure that the person writing the prescription, uh, in fact, is who they are, and that someone could not say, well, I did not write that prescription. And for the DEA, they wanted to make it actually better than paper. They wanted to make it more secure than paper. So it took uh, nine years, but then in 2010, they did adopt an interim final rule that created that framework and those rules so that physicians could prescribe electronically a controlled substance. But we're now five years in. That was done in 2010. It's my understanding that still a relatively low number of e-prescriptions are actually being written. Why is that? Uh, a few reasons. First off, even though the federal uh, government changed its rule, about half the states did not allow e-prescribing of a controlled substance. So the industry undertook an effort to basically 
work with those states, whether it was a state legislature, the Board of Pharmacy, the regulators, to change the laws in those remaining states. And today, 49 states in the District of Columbia, it is legal to prescribe a controlled substance. The last state is Missouri, and it will be legal there next year. Secondly, this rule did impose new requirements. So electronic health record companies, as well as the pharmacy management companies, needed to upgrade, update their systems to comply with the new rules. And that, quite frankly, is taking a while. And it's the same time where the federal government is driving meaningful use of health information technology, and a number of changes are being imposed. Peter Kaufman, exactly what kinds of controlled drugs are we talking about here? Well, the controlled drugs include things like painkillers, narcotics, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, stimulants like a a kid with ADD would take, like Ritalin or Adderall, some psychiatric drugs, and sleeping pills like Xanax and Ambien. Uh, They're drugs that are relatively widely prescribed, but the DEA views them as abusable, uh, dangerous, and uh, certainly addictive. When a doctor issues these drugs, you've got to return for a new prescription every time you run out. There are no automatic refills on these kinds of drugs. There are different schedules. Uh, We talk about Schedule 2 through 5. Schedule 1 is not considered prescribable. And Schedule 2, they have to get a new prescription every time. Although the DEA does allow you to write a couple prescriptions uh, in advance so you can give the patient three separate prescriptions. But for the Schedule 3 through 5, which used to include Vicodin until very recently, but includes a lot of the uh, lesser drugs, the, the uh, tranquilizers like uh, Xanax and Ambien, they can be given refills for up to six months. But it still is a more complicated process than just writing a regular prescription for you know, a cholesterol drug or a blood pressure medicine. Sean Kelly, the move to online prescriptions for controlled substances comes at a time when we're seeing a prescription abuse epidemic around the country. We talked last month on this show about how the over-prescription of powerful painkillers like OxyContin was fueling addiction, including to heroin. As an emergency room physician, can you tell us what this epidemic look like, looks like on the ground? Yeah, uh, absolutely taking a huge human toll right now and and has reached epidemic proportions. Uh, We see it every day in practice. Um, In the ER, probably about four to five patients per shift are affected with this. Um, As you um, suggested, it's a big um, threat to people um, from a population health standpoint. Um, More people die from prescription overdoses per year in the United States now than do from car accidents. And this is not something that's just local to our area or to the ER. Uh, at Improvada, we work with CMOs around the country, and every one of them are quite concerned. Um, we're seeing this as a pervasive problem across the country, um, different geographic regions, different uh, income classes. Everyone really is affected. Um, and at the same time, we can feel the regulatory environment stiffening as well. And so really, this is an issue that's on the top of everyone's mind. Sean, besides painkiller addiction, we're also hearing a lot about growing addiction to drugs like Adderall and Ritalin, stimulants traditionally prescribed for ADHD in children. In fact, a 2013 report by the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration found that emergency room visits related to non-medical use of prescription stimulants among adults 18 to 34 tripled from 2005 to 2011 to almost 23,000. Are you seeing a similar pattern at Beth Israel in Boston? Uh, We are. I think we're seeing it really across the country. Um, You know, it's estimated that over 2 million uh, people in the United States are abusing some sort of prescription medication. And, you know, to give you an idea of the scope of this problem, um, there are upwards of 260 million prescriptions uh, written per year for powerful controlled substances. Um, this is equivalent to about a bottle uh, per adult in the United States in every household. Um, so those are some scary statistics. Um, you know, again, talking to CMOs around the country, um, we see this, um, that this is happening, as, as Peter and Paul said, not just with narcotics, but with a lot of different prescription pills and also leading to heroin addiction, um, which isn't even accounted for in some of the statistics that we just talked about. Peter Kaufman, there are two common terms we hear a lot in this drug addiction epidemic, doctor shopping and diversion. Can you explain those? Sure. Doctor shopping is when a person goes to multiple prescribers 
uh, with the same complaint, trying to get more than they should need for a uh, addictive agent or painkillers. Um, diversion is where legitimately made pharmaceuticals are diverted from their lawful purpose. It's kind of a technical way of looking at it, but basically it's obtaining or creating a prescription unlawfully, either going to a doctor and lying or forging one, um, or it can also mean taking grandma's Percocet, you know, going into somebody's medicine cabinet and taking the drugs that were correctly prescribed for somebody but taking them for the wrong reasons. Um, and how about diversion, people stealing prescription pads? Uh, that's, you know, another... Another way of getting it, and of course, using controlled drug uh, electronic prescribing, you eliminate the prescription pads. I know of one pr local practice that got rid of all the prescription pads and then wrote on they had new ones ordered that said not valid for prescribing, so they could write for X-ray orders and physical therapy orders on these new prescription pads, but they only would prescribe electronically. They did have emergency backup prescription pads under lock and key in case the system went down. Like all electronic systems, nothing's perfect, but they're getting better and better, and it certainly is a way of avoiding that kind of problem. We did ask the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, to participate in today's discussion, but our offer was declined. In case you're just joining us, we're having a Tech Tuesday conversation about prescribing cont controlled substances online with Paul Urich, Chief, Chief Administrative and Legal Officer and Chief Privacy Officer with SureScripts. Dr. Peter Kaufman is Chief Medical Officer with Dr. First and Gastroenterologist with Capital Digestive Care in Bethesda, Maryland. And Dr. Sean Kelly is Chief Medical Officer with Improvata and Emergency Medical Physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. You can call us at 800-433-8850. Do you take a prescription for a controlled substance like a painkiller? What kind of checks do you have to go through to fill your prescription? Here, with a response to that, is Bill in Annapolis, Maryland. Bill, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Coach. Thanks for taking my call. So, um, in a real-life situation, this happened to me yesterday. I needed to get my son's Vyvanse prescription. Um, he takes that for ADHD. Um, filled yesterday. I used his last one and, and had to get it done because it's exam times, and, and you needed to have it, you know, focused on exams. Um, I had to jump through hoops to get the doctors to write one, and then I had to get a friend to pick it up and drop it off at the pharmacy and, and then wait for it. And But it got done. And, I, and it wasn't me that picked it up. I didn't show my ID. It could have been anybody I called to do it. Um, so there wasn't much control there. But then on the other hand, you know, I've had a couple of knee surgeries, and doctors will give you Oxycontin or, or you know, um, uh, something else and just call it in, and you can pick that up. Um, I'll maybe take one the first night, and then I've got a whole bottle there that I have no idea what to do with. Nobody will take these things once you're uh, – once you, once you don't need them or don't want them anymore. So I guess one of the inconsistencies of, of these controlled substances and how they're prescribed is, is one of my questions. And the other is, what do you do when you've got a bottle full of controlled substance? You don't want it. You're not taking it. And you want to get it out of the house. I mean, where can you bring it? Pharmacies won't take it. I'm not sure what to do with it. Well, don't sell it on the street, that's for sure. <laughs> Peter Kaufman. And don't flush it yeah. down the toilet either. We don't need I, that I, in the I, water I, supply. Yeah, I, I don't do either one of those things. So, um, uh, but, but I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you for your call. Most uh, states will occasionally have, and you have to hang on to them, but they'll have periods where you can bring the drugs into a center. Sometimes it's the local medical society that will collect it, but somebody will collect the drugs and dispose of them uh, safely. Uh, a lot of people have been flushing anything they don't take down the toilet, which includes antibiotics and narcotics, and there you know, are measurable amounts in the water supply. So please don't do that. Just hang on to it and uh, look for a uh, redemption period where you can bring the drugs in and, and have them disposed of safely. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation, but you can still call at 800-433-8850. Does your doctor still issue paper prescriptions? You can send email to kojo at wamu.org or go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. It's Tech Tuesday. I'm Kojo Nandi. Good afternoon. This is WAMU 88.5-1221. Mostly cloudy skies, at least here in northwest Washington. 91 degrees as well. Uh, heat index of 99 outside. Scojo Nodby Show continues prescribing controlled substances online. It's Tech Tuesday, as you've been hearing 
since noon. WAMU 88.5 and Wolf Trap are offering the chance to win tickets to see the musical group Pink Martini. The performance is on July 10th at Wolf Trap. More information is at WAMU.org under events. Today at 2 on Fresh Air. Terry will have a conversation with an Israeli writer whose new collection of personal essays spans the time between the birth of his son and the death of his father. He's a secular Jew and the son of Holocaust survivors. Fresh air starts today at 2 o'clock. Chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from General Dynamics IT Cloud Solutions, providing your enterprise with secure federal cloud solutions. General Dynamics Cloud Solutions. GDIT.com slash cloud. And from BSA, the Software Alliance. With software, you're able to create, connect, and collaborate like never before. You can do amazing things with software. Learn more at withsoftware.org. And from Brilliant Earth, committed to environmental and social responsibility when designing diamond engagement and wedding rings and other fine jewelry. More information online at brilliantearth.com. We're talking about prescribing controlled substances online with Dr. Sean Kelly, Chief Medical Officer at Improvata and Emergency Medical Physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Peter Kaufman is Chief Medical Officer at Dr. First and Gastroenterologist with Capital Digestive Care in Bethesda, Maryland. And Paul Urig is Chief Administrative and Legal Officer and Chief Privacy Officer with SureScript. Sean, there's a digital system in place in 49 states, as we mentioned earlier, called the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. It allows doctors and pharmacists to track patients taking controlled substances. Ideally, it should be able to flag doctor shoppers that we mentioned earlier, but the PDMP, as it's called, is not mandatory everywhere. How does the system work, and what are some of the issues with it? Sure. So the issue um, is was brought actually um, to light with the, the last caller talking about the inconsistency of the prescribing patterns and the patterns of prescription um, around the U.S. And so the idea is that as a physician, when a patient comes in and presents and potentially needs a prescription drug that is a controlled substance, that there's a database that could be accessed in order to find out if that person legitimately needs those medicines or has potentially been uh, doctor shopping or out there getting drugs for diversion and abuse. Uh, The problem is a lot of this technology is very old. Um, It was built almost uh, back in the 80s and 90s in many cases. Um, It doesn't often sync up and give real-time data, and it's not convenient for physicians and prescribers. Um, So at Improvada and with SureScripts and Dr. First, one of the, the key elements is that you know, we're all very concerned with security, but with doctors and nurses, it's all about convenience as it is for the patients. And so having technology that's not just accurate, but convenient to access and doesn't disrupt a doctor's workflow or a patient's ability to quickly get medicines is really important in making any system usable. Paul, it's my understanding that New York is a leader in its use of both the prescription drug monitoring program and its adoption of e-prescribing of controlled drugs Tell us about that state's progress. Sure. So New York adopted the iStop legislation, and they have essentially mandated both the use of a prescription drug monitoring plan as well as e-prescribing, not only of controlled substances but of all drugs. And that mandate will go into place on March 27th of 2016 for e-prescribing. And so what you do see is uh, requiring the use of a PDMP plan Uh, does increase the ability of that physician to intervene, identify patients who are at risk. We've also seen New York, at the end of last year, New York ranked at number 21 in terms of states ready for e-prescribing of controlled substances. By the end of the first quarter, they were at number one in terms of the number of physicians who are ready and the number of pharmacies who are ready. So you see the impact of a a government regulation uh, in, in making change here. On to David in Bowie, Maryland. David, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, Kojo, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm a pharmacist, and I practice day in and day out um, in dispensing control substances. Um, The thing that I haven't heard from your guests is this. Uh, In order for the e-prescribing to be effective, uh, we have to eliminate uh, the, the corporate interest and then other interests and then enforce the law that is already in book 
you know, the, the OBRA 90, the Omni Budget Reconciliation Act of 90, has clearly stated that pharmacists to actually follow with their patients and then and see whether or not patients are really receiving these are the patients you know that have, have they been counseled have they gotten the medication is this really that specific uh, you know medication that this person is supposed to receive they're supposed to contact with the physicians but all this require time time is is what is absent in and in our drug stores because our pharmacists are just there just to sell in their license and then and and the corporate wants them to make sure these things are just out the door we know it this thing has been approved for how long now for for since 2010 for, for, yes i mean since last month uh, since last year in uh, november you know c2s could be prescribed electronically but the use is very limited and 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 I know that you know every state has its own law, but you know uh, the strangest uh, law is what has to be really enforced. Let me see what Paul York had to say about this. Well, it's correct. I think both in the physician setting and the pharmacy setting, we all know that time is limited, right? You know, we hear the studies that a physician spends 8 to 13 minutes with, with the patient. That's why tools that we're talking about, electronic prescribing, PDMP plans that can increase efficiency uh, are key, right, in this. And I do think we'd see a trend in, in the adoption of electronic prescribing of controlled substances. So last year, we processed about 1.67 million uh, uh, prescriptions for controlled substances. We saw that same number in the first quarter of this year. So all the trends are positive, and, and the 2014 numbers are 400% greater than the 2013 numbers. So I think all the trends are very positive in terms of physicians beginning to use this technology. David, thank and you. And I would, I would support ahead, that Sean. point. Um, just because I think the caller brings up a great point on the pharmacy end and Paul reinforces it on the provider end and the pharmacy end, um, time is of the essence and technology can really be the separator. It can really make the difference. It really wasn't until the I-STOP law happened in New York as a forcing function where a lot of the, uh, the technologies involved are actually getting certified uh, in a DEA-compliant way and the technology is now mature enough to be usable. It really wasn't until um, this year that these systems are starting to stitch together and actually allow providers and hopefully pharmacists too to have a viable option that's electronic, traceable, secure, and convenient. And David, speaking of technology, thank you for your call. Go ahead, Peter. Speaking of technology, you know the technology can also help with that time constraint by helping the provider focus on what they need to talk about, getting uh, feedback on patients' compliance with their medications from their EHR or their electronic prescribing application can help the provider know who needs, what patients need to be talked to. So if they are limited with time, they are reminded that they should talk about this issue with this patient, and that can you know, help uh, to solve some of these issues as well. When, when we spoke I guess it was last month on this show about the overprescription of these controlled substances. A big question that came out of that conversation was who's checking the doctors? How can these drugs move out the door in such mass quantities? So I'd like to talk, Peter, about how technology is addressing that with electronic prescriptions. The software that your company, Doctor First, developed was responsible for about 60% of the controlled drug prescriptions issued last year. Can you tell us about the security checks that go on in a doctor's office before prescriptions are even written? Yes, a lot of this came from the DEA's interim final rule, and <clears throat> they require three things to occur. One is that the doctor needs to go through identity proofing. They need to prove who they say they are. They can either do that online uh, with questions that ask them things that somebody would not know and would not be able to get out-of-pocket information, or they could do it face-to-face, -face, especially through a medical staff office at their hospital, which has really done quite a bit of research on each doctor that they give privileges to. The second thing is something called access control, where the system, the e-prescribing system or the electronic medical record system, will be told by uh, two different people that this prescriber should be allowed access to write controlled drug prescriptions with the system. And then every time the prescriber writes a controlled drug prescription, they have to authenticate to the system with a two-factor authentication. That's two of the factors, something you know, something you have, and something you are. Something you know would be like a password. Something you have could be a token or a smart card, and something you are would be a biometric. 
like a fingerprint. So you'd need two of those things to authenticate yourself to the system and tell the system that, yeah, yes, this is Dr. Peter Kaufman, and I'm writing this prescription. Go ahead and send it. Does the software check a patient's record for previous prescriptions? Well, that's a good question. Right now, the software generally doesn't. We did a study in Michigan with the RAND Corporation uh, in 2011 where we looked at getting the PDMP data from Michigan directly into e-prescribing at the time it was written. And it was very successful at finding doctor shoppers and patients who seemed to be having issues with narcotic prescriptions at the time the prescriptions were being written. Currently, about half the states have signed on to a couple of clearinghouses or a couple of competing ones that will offer application program interfaces to allow you to put that information into the electronic medical record or the or the electronic prescribing application to show that data at the time that the person's writing the prescriptions. Right now, they have to log in to a portal, put in the patient's information in the portal, and pull up that data, which nobody has time to do at the time that they're writing a prescription. And, you know, that's what they're doing in New York, so the staff checks it the day before on every patient whether they're going to get a controlled drug or not. So this could help efficiency also, and I'm glad you asked me that question because I was dying to answer it. <laughs> okay, on to the telephones again. Here is Kenny in Herndon, Virginia. Kenny, have we answered your question yet? Um, somewhat. Um, I'm curious, and hi, I want to thank you guys for taking my call today. And uh, Dr. Kaufman, it's great to have uh, clinical staff here. I have a question about regulatory mandates because one of the things that you had referenced or that has been referenced on the show is that New York had some pretty aggressive legislation you know, from what it sounds like, controlled substance prescribing electronically um, has been going on for some time now. Have we seen more legislation pick up in other states, A, and B, why haven't we seen the adoption for controlled substance prescribing electronically that we should see? Paul? So we see a couple states uh, beginning to look at similar laws. Maryland and Massachusetts are two that come to mind where they are uh, in the process of, of looking into adopting a statute similar to I-STOP that would require e-prescribing of controlled substances. You know, secondly, you know, what we find is, is e-prescribing of controlled substances is picking up in states where a state may, it may not require it, but it has programs uh, that bring prescribers, pharmacies, payers together to drive both awareness uh, of of the technology and and how to use it. So, you know, government programs, whether a mandate or otherwise, uh, are, are certainly very important in in doing this. In, in Arizona, they used a consultant a consulting firm called Point of Care Partners, and they brought them in for a region of the state, and they had tremendous uptake in e-prescribing controlled substances. Kenny Peterson, to tell uh, you hi. <laughs> Kenny, thank you very much for your call. Thank you very much. Take care, guys. Bye, Kenny. Proof that, Sean, proof that you are who you say you are is mandatory in this process. The software your company, Improvata, makes takes care of that requirement in a process called two-factor authentication. Tell us more about that. Yeah, as uh, Paul and Peter described, um, in order to be DEA compliant, you need to prove that it's you actually prescribing this medication. And so you can do that in a couple of ways that's allowed by the DEA. Um, the problem is that this needs to integrate very well with clinician workflow or it won't be used well. So what we try to do is to help um, integrate that directly to the workflow by using either fingerprint readers or one-time PIN tokens, which is something that you get distributed to you, either as a hard token key fob or a soft token on the phone. Uh, we've also created a new Bluetooth secure connection, which allows for the physician or prescriber to actually use their phone as the one-time PIN token, which is a fantastic way for clinicians to allow this connection to happen right in their pocket without ever even having to take their device out. Um, and it's completely DEA secure. Um, so this is, a, this is an example of, again, trying to make sure that the security is top-notch, but also that it's convenient and usable for the providers. And also there's an authentication trail that links in directly to the e-prescription module of the, all the major EMR vendors, uh, including Dr. First, and then links outwards to SureScript's network, which routes the prescription to the pharmacy. It's impressive that you can get all of these different pieces of software to talk with one another. There are hundreds of electronic health record systems layered with security software like Improvada's, layered with medication interfaces like Dr. First. 
They all communicate with SureScripts. Can you tell me a little bit about the security precautions um, that go into complex health systems like this, um, especially, Sean, since we're seeing more hacks by overseas sources? Yeah, I think um, you know one of the one of the key components is that you know Improvada is a healthcare IT security company has been there for ten or twelve years, works directly with CIOs in most major hospitals across the country, um, and so in addition to partnering up with all the other vendors in the space like SureScripts and Doctor First and the EMR systems. Um, you know, really have to make sure that all these networks are stitched together. Um, I think, you know, one of the callers was asking why the the technology hadn't been adequately adopted yet. And I think that you alluded to that. It's amazingly complex to get the systems to talk together, be usable, and also be secure. Um, so I think, you know, there's been a lot of homework going into that over the past couple of years. Uh, a lot of progress has been made. And I think we're at an exciting tipping point where you're going to see technology being adopted now in the electronic prescription of controlled substance space, just like it was in the e-prescription space over the past few years. Peter? There's another issue. There's a lot of discussion about interoperability in healthcare. The standards in e-prescribing are far more mature than they are in the rest of healthcare. And e-prescribing is head and shoulders ahead of the rest of e electronic healthcare in terms of using those standards. Everybody uses the same standards. Anybody can plug into the system, you know, a, a vendor, SureScripts Pharmacy, and read and, and write everything everybody else is understanding because the standards are mature and they're in wide use. While electronic management of controlled substances certainly seems like a big step forward in keeping these drugs secure, there's been a lot of concern by veterans groups, especially the people who really need these drugs, are suffering more because of DEA restrictions, backlogs, and extra wait time. Let me go to Seaman in Fairfax, Virginia. Seaman, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello. Good morning. Um, sorry. Uh, hello. Do you hear me? Yes, we hear you, Seaman. Okay, sure. Uh, I wanted to uh, raise two points. One is that because of this uh, strong control, uh, it creates problems with people who have legitimate pain. And, um, like, two things that I know, I have observed in my family. One is when my daughter had a broken ankle, and she had to be in hospital for two days before she could have injury because the swelling had to go down. I had to fight the surgeon to get enough medication so she wouldn't suffer because uh, they never gave her enough. And then it's the case of cancer. Even when people are dying of cancer, the last week of their life, they suffer so much pain because they never give them enough. And so why the minority of people are drug addicts and criminals, the majority of people have to suffer. And uh, I don't know why we should be sacrificed for that. Well, and, uh, I'd like to have our panel respond to, to both that issue and the issue of veterans. First you, Sean. Yeah, thanks, Kojo, um, and thank you to the caller. Um, you know, look, I think medicine really is um, in this situation about balancing the need to help people who are legitimately in pain, and there are many of them out there, as she described, um, versus being susceptible to fraud and contributing to drug diversion and abuse. Um, I really do think that technology can help create a system that's more transparent and allow prescriber patterns to be more evident and prevent abuse both on the prescribing side but also on the quality assurance side where um, hospital systems and vendors can look back and help analyze and say, this is the correct policy, this is the correct enforcement, but that doesn't happen until there's accurate data. And so there's been a lot of talk and policy making about what to do on the downstream effects of this epidemic. Should you give a Narcan reversal drug? Should you open more treatment centers? You know, Improvada, SureScripts, Dr. First, a lot of this technology is actually trying to affect the problem upstream at the very beginning with provider providing um, care and prescribing practices. Clean that up first, get accurate data, and the rest should fall into place with that. I really think technology can, can be part of the answer here. Paul, Peter, as doctors and technologists, um, the other issue of veterans, do you think there should be special provisions for people like vets, or is this a slippery slope? 
Well, it, it is key that we get the prescriptions and the drugs to the people who need them, as the caller said, right? And that is part of, of where technology is going to play a role. As, as Sean said, it's accurate data, but it's also getting that data to the right place at the right time so that physician can assess the patient, uh, understand if they're at risk or if they're truly in pain and need that medication. Um, so, you know, I, I think technology is going to play a very important role in that respect. I hope veterans in the general population get exactly the same care. I don't think anybody should get special treatment. Um, I do a couple of different activities with the Wounded Warriors, and they are just amazing people. But I would hope that everybody gets you know, excellent care, and that's, that's the goal. In terms of not getting enough pain medicines, that's too bad. I, I, that should be corrected. And there's certainly a big move in medicine these days to make sure people are out of pain, especially cancer patients. But there's also the issue of physicians who are worried about losing their licenses because the you know, State Board of Physician Quality Assurance in Maryland sometimes will go after a doctor who they think has written uh, too much narcotics. So there's a happy medium in there, and I'm not sure how to reach it. How to take a short hey, break. Kojo. When, when we, go ahead, Sean. Oh, I just one final point on on the patients. Um, patients actually are very satisfied with electronic prescription methods. Um, they loved getting their prescriptions channeled directly to the pharmacy and not having to wait around for the piece of paper that they carry over to the pharmacy and wait in line to get filled. So I think that's important to remember as well. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this Tech Tuesday conversation on prescribing controlled substances online. If you'd like to join it, give us a call, 800-433-8850. Do you know someone who is struggling with prescription drug addiction? You can also go to our website, kojoshow.org. Join the conversation there. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up at 1, we talk with U.S. Representative Chris Van Harlan about the debate over stricter gun licensing rules. Plus, after nearly three decades on the job, the Librarian of Congress is stepping down. What's next for one of the world's largest libraries? Today at 1 on the Kojo Namdi Show on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Good afternoon. The Kojo Namdi Show returns in just a moment. Thank you so much for listening. It's 1244. I'm Pat Brogan. Mostly cloudy skies, 94 degrees now, with a heat index of 100 outside. Please consider becoming a sustaining member of the station with an ongoing monthly contribution. It's quick, easy, and goes a long way towards supporting your favorite shows. Find out more at 800-248-8850 or wamu.org. Partly sunny today, scattered showers and thunderstorms. Some storms may produce gusty winds and small hail. Support for WAMU 88.5 comes from the National Biodiesel Board. Biodiesel is committed to powering America from coast to coast. More information on biodiesel at americasadvancedbiofuel.net. And from BSA, the Software Alliance. With software, you're able to create, connect, and collaborate like never before. You can do amazing things with software. Learn more at withsoftware.org. And from General Dynamics IT Cloud Solutions, providing your enterprise with secure federal cloud solutions. General Dynamics Cloud Solutions, gdit.com slash cloud. Welcome back to our conversation about prescribing controlled substances online. It's a Tech Tuesday conversation with Dr. Peter Kaufman, Chief Medical Officer at Dr. First. Paul Urig is Chief Administrative and Legal Officer and Chief Privacy Officer with SureScripts. And Dr. Sean Kelly is the Chief Medical Officer at Improvata. If you find the lines are busy, you want, want to shut us, shoot us an email to kojo at wamu.org. Paul, while about 78% of pharmacies are ready to receive these e-prescriptions, only about 2% of providers are nationally, is the cost of layering all this security software onto an office's health record system a deterrent to adopting it? We've not heard that cost has been that much of a factor. Different electronic health record companies treat it differently. Some will charge uh, their users. Others do not. But it would be naive to say that, that this is not adding cost to the system overall, right? Electronic health record companies have had to expend substantial amounts to improve their systems, as well as pharmacies have. And then all of them have to get a third-party certification, something called a 1311 certification, to make sure that they meet uh, the rules. But we've not heard that cost is, is the primary barrier. How do you convince the much smaller practices out there in 
rural areas to adopt e-prescriptions of controlled substances. Is that a challenge? You know, you have to use the same arguments with, with everybody, quite frankly, that they're going to see efficiencies, that they will get better data about their patients and the patient convenience in, in getting those prescriptions to the pharmacy in advance. Uh, so it's, it's really uh, getting the knowledge out there in those programs that I spoke about earlier so that they're aware of the capability. Here okay. is Cameron in Olney, Maryland. Cameron, your turn. Hi, how's it going? Going well. Um, I'm a pain management physician. Uh, I I don't know why you guys actually don't have one of us on the panel, but um, I had a couple of concerns with the Maryland uh, prescription drug database. It got implemented about a year ago. It was a very rough start to get it going. It had a lot of bugs, basically like the uh, like the uh, health exchange plans when that was getting rolled out, um, the website. So in maryland since we're a small state we get a lot of patients from other neighboring states uh i'm a pain management physician i do mainly interventional and i don't i don't write a lot of narcotics but once in a while i do uh but when i see a patient from delaware pennsylvania virginia anywhere like that uh the maryland database does not have access to any of these things short scripts sometimes does sometimes doesn't uh, i'd say about 60 percent of the time it works and 40 percent of the time it doesn't bring up any data from these places so I think this entire database needs to be a federally funded DEA database rather than each state putting together their own system. Um, one of the other issues with prescribing these things online is sometimes we need to change the medication uh, after we write it and before the patient leaves. And there's no way to take this prescription back and rescind that prescription and send another one without calling the pharmacy and saying, hey, please cancel that prescription and uh, you know I'm gonna send you another one. So in terms of the time factor, that's a huge problem, whereas, you know, before the patient leaves, we can just rip up that old prescription, write the new one, and give it to them. Uh, but with the e-prescribing, you have to actually call the pharmacy, um, to explain to them what's going on. It takes about 10, 15 minutes sometimes to get somebody on the phone because a, a pharmacy tech can't do it, so they have to get a pharmacist on the line. So there's a lot of uh, burden to doing all these things that um, I think maybe the people who are designing these systems don't actually bring real physicians into it. They just have a bunch of um, consultants and tech people that are designing it. So it would help to actually talk to the people on the front line and say, hey, what works for you guys and what doesn't work, rather than just making a system and saying, all right, this is what we have. Let's talk to a couple of the real physicians on the panel. First, you, Peter Kaufman. Well, the good news is that the help is on the way. There are now 29 states that have signed on to these uh, to these clearinghouses, and there will be data sharing between the states, and hopefully it will be all 50 states in the District of Columbia before too long that we'll be able to eventually, hopefully within a year, show you the prescribing data uh, within your electronic uh, medical record or within your electronic prescribing application. Uh, in addition, um, you'll be able to uh, send Rx cancel and Rx change. I talked about standards earlier. There are some standards that are out there. They, they're fully accepted, but they're not really in wide use yet, where you could cancel the prescription electronically rather than calling the pharmacy and waiting on the phone. And the pharmacist can contact you with Rx change uh, for changes in the prescription that are required rather than uh, doing it over the telephone as well. Care to any, add anything to that, Sean? Absolutely. Um, so great points by the caller. Um, and as uh, Peter said, there are efforts to try to connect these PMPs or you know prescription monitoring programs together. Uh, we've been working with the National Association of Board of Pharmacies, and they have something called the PMP Interconnect, uh, which is now up and running, and I think 24-plus states are on it. Um, I'm familiar exactly with the problem he, he is presenting because I'm in New England with a bunch of small states near each other, and so having those in a, systems not connecting to each other becomes a big problem for clinicians. Um, as far as the uh, prescription callback issues and cancellation issues, in addition to Peter's comments, I would just say that really any workflow has its issues. Uh, I, I would not say that the paper system we have now is not without similar issues. They're just different ones. Um, you know, right now, if you write a paper prescription and, um, you know, yesterday we had one where the dosage of Tylenol in the Vicodin product was not the same, and that patient went to the pharmacy. We had to rewrite one, but they won't accept that because there's no electronic way to submit it directly to the pharmacy, so that patient had to come back to the ER for a second prescription. So these workflow issues exist everywhere. Um, he's absolutely correct that clinicians and patients need to be 
involved and have a voice in how these systems are made. And, you know, we love that feedback. And if he wants to leave his number with you, we'd be happy to get him on a customer advisory board and get him involved. Well, uh, you can actually call back if you'd like to do that because our caller hung up at this point. But <laughs> we'd be happy to have you call back and take your number. In the meantime, let's hear what John in Fairfax, Virginia, has to say. John, your turn. Hello, glad to be on. I have uh, noticed that almost all of your four, your uh, guests and callers have touched on issues pertaining to paramedical security. Uh, I'm a nurse, and I provide uh, and use exchange uh, secure and HIPAA protected documents with my clients. But it's very hard to do online, uh, even with the military, which I do some. Uh, their system is insecure. It's a commercial system, and to use it, uh, patients have to waive their HIPAA rights to get onto the system so that they can send a message to their physician. Uh, there are uh, secure email systems available, and I've been using one. It's based out of Switzerland, but the idea is that it is a way to increase the uh, ambiance of security around uh, medical care. Uh, all you, mostly you've been speaking about uh, pharmaceuticals, but a lot of the security also applies to the possible social engineering that can occur uh, to the, as I say, paramedical information that you exchange with your patients. Paul, you're right. You know, th there's no doubt that security and privacy are key when you're dealing with uh, patient information. You know, that is first and foremost. Peter mentioned the, the discussions going on today about interoperability so that all of these systems can connect in a very secure way so that the, the information is encrypted while in flight as well as encrypted while um, you know, in, in storage. So we see the industry moving in that direction so that and increasingly we have more and more technologies that do exactly what the caller suggested, allow patients to access a portal and have those secure communications. You know, where we want to head to is an environment where, you know, as I said, the right information get to the right place at the right time in a highly secure way. Um, and we see that beginning to happen. Thank you very much for your call, John. We move on to Dan in Washington, D.C. Dan, your turn. Uh, thank you, Kojo. Uh, my, I represent the Abuse Deterrent Coalition, uh, which is a organization of abuse deterrent manufacturers and patient advocacy organizations that are working to expand the technology. And Kojo, we really appreciate what you're talking about today because you're talking about technology expansion. Uh, we know uh, as physicians uh, and, and others that we can treat our patients effectively, but it's the uh, misuse of prescription drugs that uh, is fueling all of this actions. The PDMPs are important tools, and they certainly provide some important raw data, not only about potential patient abuse, but also potential overprescribing. But in itself, it is just data, and it is part of the problem. And we need a multimodal approach to prescription drug abuse. Uh, abuse deterrent formulations work hand-in-hand with uh, prescription management programs such as the electronic uh, prescribing uh, uh, functions to provide safer and better medications for patients. And we certainly uh, uh, salute the conversation today and would uh, like to make sure that there are equal parts of the conversation discussed. Thank you very much for raising that issue, Dan. Uh, care to comment on it at all, Peter? Um, well, the abuse deterrent formulations are a, a wonderful idea, and they are certainly reducing abuse to some level. Unfortunately, there are websites that people go to to find out ways to get around some of those pills. Their pills are getting better and better at finding ways of uh, preventing that. Um, there's also, you know, the cost issue. Uh, but, you know, this is one of those things that's, that's moving along, and uh, I certainly value the availability of the abuse deterrent formulations, and I think that they are certainly, uh, as the name implies, a deterrent. You're thinking Nothing's about perfect. abuse deterrent formulations, Paul? I, you know, I, I guess I'd focus on the larger issue, right, which is, as the caller said, right, there's no one piece of this puzzle that will solve the problem. And we need to make sure we have a very comprehensive policy that, that not only looks at, at the technology 
um, uh, but other measures. Because as you close off avenues, either for criminals or for people who are, 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 are in need because they're addicted to a drug, they'll look for other avenues. And we need to make sure as a, as a nation we have a very comprehensive policy to address this. Here's Tego in Baltimore, Maryland. Tego, your turn. Hey, Kojo. Thanks for having my, taking my call. Um, I actually I have prescriptions for um, two different drugs. So um, one of them is an antibiotic, ciproflaxin, and the other is a is a anti-diarrheal lamotil. I'm actually a patient at Capital Digestive Care, so um, oddly enough. Um, but yeah, so I take those two pills. And I think the the big issue is, like, how they are classified. And I think other colleges have talked about that to some degree. But so essentially I can get the antibiotics no problem uh, electronically. Um, refills is pretty much no problem that the doctor can just send to the pharmacy. But the Lamotil, which to me has less side effects and does worse things in the future um, going forward the more I take these pills, um, is, like, nearly impossible to get unless I contact my doctor, go see him, uh, etc. We're running out of time very quickly. I'll have Peter Kaufman answer your question. How do you decide or how do they decide what should be a controlled substance and what not? Lamotil has a synthetic opioid in it that uh, a lot of people used to take uh, narcotics to cause constipation and it's certainly a side effect of narcotics. Uh, So that's why Lamotil has that uh, particular classification. It's a low level one, but it's still there. Uh, we use a lot more modium. Uh, part of the issue for the patient is that the electronic medical record that Capital Digestive Care uses, while it uses Doctor First software, is not yet capable of doing EPCS, the controlled drug you're prescribing, where the doctor will be able to send it right to the pharmacy without him having to go in. Afraid that's all the time we have. Dr. Peter Kaufman is Chief Medical Officer with Dr. First, and he's a gastroenterologist with Capital Digestive Care in Bethesda, Maryland. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Paul Yerrick is Chief Administrative and Legal Officer and Chief Privacy Officer with Sure Scripts. Paul, thank you for joining us. Great pleasure. Thank you. And Dr. Sean Kelly is Chief Medical Officer at Improvata and Emergency Medical Physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Sean, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kojo. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. Coming up tomorrow on the Kojo Namdi show, Tangled Politics, a lawsuit over admission standards for Asian Americans at Harvard sparks debate. Then at one, what new leadership in Annapolis means for the ongoing oyster restoration project in the Chesapeake. The Kojo Namdi show, noon till two tomorrow on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at kojoshow.org. Today's programs are made possible in part by Linda and Bill Deedle in celebration of their 64th wedding anniversary on the occasion of their wedding day on June 16, 1951. Good afternoon. This is WAMU 885-1259, mostly cloudy, 94 degrees. On the next Fresh Air starts at 2, Terry Gross interviews. Thanks for listening to the Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 885, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at WAMU.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.